coming to a, a text which we uh, looked at for the first time last week, uh, looking at it again this week, and I, and I thought last week and this Sunday how appropriate it is in light of our annual business meeting immediately after the service. Uh, part of every business meeting is always finances, budgets, what we did last year, what we're proposing for next year. And Paul in this text addresses the whole issue of when it comes to ministry funds, when it comes to how a congregation handles its finances, uh, they must always be handled with great integrity, to be above board, above question uh, in every detail. And so looking at this text, it's wonderful preparation again for our business meeting to follow. Last week I read just part of the text. I'm going to read it uh, in its entirety this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting with verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you uh, to these men. And then the first verses of chapter 9. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident." So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Integrity in handling church finances. Carl Vodders uh, writes a, a blog called Pivot, uh, and it's in conjunction with uh, the periodical Christianity Today. Carl is a pastor of a relatively small church out in California, just south of the Los Angeles area. And in one of his blog posts, he talks about a particular property that he'd been trying to rent for several months as a place for his fledgling congregation to meet on Sundays. 
Well, the company that owned the building denied his request, but they didn't really give a reason, just said no and thank you, and that was the end of the conversation. But they really didn't give a reason, and so it was the perfect place, and so he persisted. And he called a second time, called a third time. Well, one day when he called the company yet again, because he hadn't really gotten a good answer on why they couldn't rent it, uh, he talked to the same receptionist that he had visited with several times before, and she knew he was frustrated, calling yet again and the conversation wasn't going anywhere until finally she said quietly so no one else in the office could hear her she said to him they won't rent to you because you're a church well Carl Vodders said that made him angry and he was ready to launch into a speech about non-discrimination and religious rights and those kinds of things when she kept on talking and he said her next words uh, shocked me and embarrassed me and let me read from his blog post. I'm a Christian too, she told me. So I'm ashamed to say this, but the reason they won't rent to churches is because the last four churches we rented to never paid on time, and all of them walked away owing us thousands of dollars. Everyone else we rent to has a proper budget and pays on time, and if they didn't, we'd sue them. But what can we do when a church doesn't pay? My boss isn't a Christian, but he doesn't think it's right to sue a church. So the only answer is not to rent to churches anymore. I apologized to her on behalf of the body of Christ for how her business had been hurt financially. Then I thanked her for her honesty, and we said goodbye. I hung up, saddened again by the behavior of people who sully the name of Jesus because we're not keeping our financial house in order. How important it is, and I, and I stated this last Sunday, I stated again, how important it is, it is for us as pastors, as spiritual leaders, as congregations to be absolutely above board and above reproach when it comes to money and finances. Some of you have undoubtedly heard the old story about the miser who was on his deathbed. Well, the old miser called his doctor and his lawyer and his minister to his deathbed, and he said to them, they say, you can't take it with you, but I'm going to prove them wrong. And so he said, I have here three envelopes. Each envelope contains $100,000 in cash. And you are my friends, and so what I want each of you to do is to take an envelope and at the funeral service, just before the funeral director closes the lid on the coffin, I want each of you to slip your envelope into the casket. Well, they all promised to do so. And uh, there at the funeral service, all of them put their envelopes dutifully into the casket. Well, the service was over with, the graveside service was over with, they were all riding together back to town and... Um, the doctor said to the other two, I've got something I need to confess. And he said, I'm building a clinic. So he said, uh, I took out $50,000 in cash and only put $50,000 into the casket. Silence for a moment. The lawyer said, well, I guess I better fess up too. He said, I took out $75,000 for a legal defense fund. I only put in $25,000. The minister said, I'm ashamed of you gentlemen for ripping off an old man like that. He said, why I'll have you know, I threw in a check for the whole amount. 
Ah, ministerial integrity is wonderful, isn't it? Well, let's uh, come again to our, to our text this morning. Last week, as we began to look at this text, uh, I highlighted two truths regarding uh, congregational ministry, Christian ministry, and finances. Let me just remind you of what those two were. The first one was this, and we saw this from the example of the Apostle Paul, that ministry leaders need to distance themselves from directly handling ministry money. And I mentioned to you as a pastor, I've had as a policy never to handle funds, never to look at checks, uh, never to count the money after a Sunday morning worship service. Uh, it, it, is, it is important to be above reproach, to be above board. Ministry leaders need to be very careful about handling money. How many pastors have gotten themselves into trouble, either rightly or wrongly, accusations made, you're handling money, maybe you're pocketing some of it. That was the accusation against Paul, by the way. And so Paul had a procedure in place by which others are going to directly handle the dollars. He's not going to touch them himself. And so the importance of ministry leaders distancing themselves from directly handling funds. Nothing can destroy a person's ministry. Nothing can destroy a congregation faster than issues of money and integrity and how they are being handled. And so that was the first principle we looked at. The second one was this. The primary qualifications, surprisingly maybe to you, in our text for those handling ministry funds have nothing to do with business ability at all. They have to do with spiritual qualifications. Now, should somebody who handles money have some business skills? Yes. Uh, should trustees have some knowledge of finances and business? Of course they should. But that's not the number one question. When you're looking for somebody to serve in a financial position in the church, you don't say, well, are they skilled at finances? That's a second or third question you ask. The primary qualification is always spiritual. It's never wise to choose somebody in a church to handle money if they're good with dollars and administration and spreadsheets, but nothing else. And so what I want to remind you of, we touched on this at some length last week, Paul organizes a team of three men to handle the finances. Titus is the head of the committee, and there are two others unnamed in the text. One is uh, alluded to in verse 18, and one in verse 22. But it's interesting, as Paul describes the credentials, so what makes these men fit to handle all the dollars that the different churches are giving? What makes them equipped to do this, to be trustees, to be administrators of the fund, has nothing to do, you notice in the text, with financial ability or being a bookkeeper, or being an accountant, or running a business. It has nothing to do with any of that. Notice the credentials. Uh, first of all, Titus. You notice in verse 16 and verse 17, Titus, Paul says, is marked by earnest care for all of you. Very earnest, Paul says in verse 17. That's a qualification. You need to care about people. You need to care about their well-being and the well-being of the ministry that all of us together are part of. And so Paul speaks about the earnest care that Titus has. Verse 22, the, the, one of the unnamed team members. He's been often tested and found earnest or diligent, you could translate it, in many matters. He's been successful in ministry. He's been diligent. He's been faithful. You notice verse 17, something else about Titus. He was willing. Uh, Paul says in the end of verse 17, he is doing this of his own accord. Paul asked him, yes, but Titus didn't say, well, you know, I'm kind of busy. 
um, I don't know, I've got other things to do. Um, yeah, somebody needs to do it. Okay, fine, I'll share this thing, I guess. That wasn't Titus's attitude. He was willing, he of his own accord, eagerly entered into this responsibility. Notice something else, verse 19. One of these unnamed individuals appointed by the churches, authorized, elected by the body as a whole. So it wasn't just one congregation, it was a whole cross-section of congregations that elected one of these committee members. Uh, you notice what's said about Titus in verse 23. A partner, a fellow worker, there was a sense of working well together with others. And then you notice back up in verse 18 one of the members on the team what was he famous for for preaching the gospel for doing mission work Paul said he's the perfect person to handle finances because he has a heart for the gospel he has a heart for ministry and so you notice those who handled this huge collection were not first and foremost businessmen they were not professional fundraisers they were not bookkeepers they were not accountants they were not individuals who worked in the financial services industry they didn't manage mutual funds it was none of that they were godly individuals who had a heart for ministry they were eager to help they were marked by impeccable integrity they were well known to the churches and they had a heart that people be reached with the gospel that the church grow more people be saved and those in the church be discipled Paul said those are the perfect ones to handle funds in fact notice something else about this team of three the two unnamed individuals verse 23 Paul calls them they are messengers of the churches if you have a, a footnote in a, in a study Bible the, the word is literally apostles they are apostles of the churches not apostle capital a like the 12 but apostle lowercase a because apostle simply means a messenger, a sent one, one that has a commission, one that's going out with responsibility. They are also apostles, small letter A, Paul says. And so the primary qualification for those in a congregation handling ministry funds needs to be spiritual first. Financial ability is second. Then notice number three. Let's, let's pick up where we left off last week. Those who administer ministry funds need to seek the Lord's glory first and foremost. So when you're putting together a budget, it's not how do we make the numbers work. Now, we need to make the numbers work. Don't misunderstand me. But how can we, in fiscal year 2023-2024, most glorify the Lord through our budget? What is God calling us to do in ministry? That's where you start. How is God most glorified? So notice verse 19, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches, this is one of these unnamed committee members, to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. That's why this offering, this collection was being taken. This is why they're handling finances for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. I want you to notice in this verse, first of all, how the offering is described. I highlighted this last week. I touched on it. Paul calls it this act of grace. Do you ever think of when you give your gift as an act of grace? Or it's like, okay, let's see, what do I have in my pocket? I haven't given for some weeks. Yeah, the budget probably needs it. Paul calls giving an act of grace. When you give with a generous heart interested in the gospel, wanting to further the cause of Christ, it becomes, money becomes, giving funds becomes 
an act of grace. And that should apply, by the way, to every aspect of ministry in a church. So, for example, let's say you're a Sunday school teacher. So you prepare for your Sunday school class. You do so with diligence and faithfulness. You have a heart for those in your class. You want them to know the Lord and know God's word. When you prepare that way, it's an act of grace. It's not just a Sunday school lesson. It's an act of grace. Let's say there's a funeral and you're asked to serve in the kitchen for the funeral. If you say, well, I don't know. Didn't I just have my turn last time? Um, Okay, fine, or I'll bring a pan of brownies, I guess. When you serve in the kitchen for a funeral because you love the Lord and you want to enter into the sorrows of a family that's lost a loved one, when you have that kind of spirit, you serving in the kitchen, making coffee, setting out the brownies is an act of grace. When you volunteer on a Wednesday night, I think of our Awana Club, and you come ready to serve, ready to help the kids in your group do whatever part you have, listen to verses, whatever it might be. When you do it and say, I want to make a difference in these kids' lives, I want to make a difference in this community, that is an act of grace. How wonderful it is when all the things that we do in the church by the Holy Spirit can be turned into beautiful acts of grace for the glory of the Lord. And so the Lord's glory must be central to the planning, to the carrying out of whatever ministry it is. So when a ministry is being planned, how can we most glorify the Lord through what we're doing? So when it comes to offering, specifically what Paul is talking about here, when I give in the offering, it's not first and foremost to meet budgetary needs. Um, I hope it's not out of obligation. I hope it's not so you can get a tax write-off but that Christ might be exalted. That's, when it comes to funds, how they are administered, why they are given, for the glory of the Lord. Notice verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers, apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. By the way, our Kenyan churches that we support are called glory of Christ. That's where they get their denominational name from is out of this verse. But what is the glory of Christ in in this verse? Is it the churches? Is it the committee members? I really think it's all of them. It's both the churches, they are the glory of Christ, and those who are on this committee serving in this way are also the glory of Christ. Uh, You recall perhaps in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, John has this vision of the risen, ascended, glorified Christ, and he sees a vision of Christian congregations and local pastors in Revelation chapter 1. And you remember the churches, John describes them as golden lampstands, giving light in the darkness, shining brightly. And there in the midst of the lampstands, there is Christ himself. John sees him there in the vision. And if you remember also, the pastors, the leaders of the church, are described in the vision as being stars in the hand of Christ. Not stars in the sense of celebrities. Uh, No Christian leader should be a Christian celebrity. There's no place for that in Scripture. But stars in the sense of also giving light. And so it is the local congregation, it is its ministries, it is the leaders, the members. We are the repositories of the glory and the light of Christ. So as we handle finances, if God's glory is to shine out through our church, if God's glory is to shine out through our lives, then that should determine the decisions we make and how we implement them. 
Uh, I invite you to turn back for a moment to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, something I I touched on uh, several weeks ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where where Paul writes about this matter of seeking the glory of the Lord a little earlier in his letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to read verses 13, 14, and 15. Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, and here he quotes from the Psalms, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. Why do we do ministry? It's for the sake of other people. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. There it is. All that we do, not just finances, but all things in ministry, seeking the glory of God first and foremost. Let's look at number four. The administration of ministry funds must always be done openly before God and man. You'll notice in our annual report today, we have auditors who looked at the finances and signed off on them. Why? Because we want everything we do financially to be open and clear and above board in the sight of God and everybody else. Now, I hope you understand when it comes to the Lord, God already sees everything, doesn't he? He knows our hearts. He knows what we do. He knows everything about our church finances. He knows about the offerings. Financial matters of every kind are open to him. And Paul says it's important, therefore, that one's motives, one's actions, one's conscience uh, is totally clear before God. But it doesn't stop there, Paul says. There needs to be a concern that all that we do with regard to finances is open and honorable in the sight of all people, whether they are Christians or not. There should not be in the community of Botno rumbling about the finances of Grace Church. Wonder what's going on over there. I heard there's you know, rumors about this or that. We need to be open and honest and above board, not only in God's presence, but Paul says in the sight of everybody, whether they are part of the congregation or whether they are not. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul calls us as believers to walk as children of light. But you know, there is a tendency, I've seen this over many years, that there's a tendency in Christian ministries, in congregations to be lax about financial matters. Ah, We're all good people. Everybody's a Christian. We've never had a problem. We don't need some sort of intense scrutiny. We all love one another. We all love the Lord. We just trust one another, and we press ahead. But when there's not openness, when there is not transparency, even if everything is perfectly ethical, 100%, people can begin to wonder or can have reason to try to stir up trouble for one reason or another. And all it takes is for one or two, with no basis in fact even, to raise suspicions, to raise questions, to make charges, to assume the worst, and ministry is harmed. And when financial matters are completely open, not only do suspicions quickly dissipate like fog in the morning, 
But openness incurs, uh, incurs greater generosity. Because people in the congregations, I know how my money's being handled. I know if I designate it to youth ministry, it's going to go to youth ministry. I know if I designate it to Awana, it's going to go to Awana. I know if it's to our missionaries in Chad, it's going to end up every dollar of it with our missionaries in Chad. People then are willing to be generous when they know that their money is carefully handled, it's not squandered, it's not wasted, it is used for the purpose for which they gave it. And when that is true across a congregation, then people are confident in giving and they are willing to continue to give because of how the money is wisely handled. Well, one more truth in this passage regarding ministry and finances. And this is something that I've mentioned before. Paul's mentioned it before, and, but because he mentions it again, I mention it again. And it's simply this, giving to various ministry endeavors to the congregation, let's put it in terms of our church here, should be generous and eager, not something extracted from people by putting them under pressure. Paul lays that out one more time in the very last verse of our text, chapter 9, verse 5. Let's walk our way just very quickly through chapter 9 and see how Paul gets to what he says in verse 5. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Now, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. He's talking about the offering. It's superfluous to write to you anything more about this collection uh, because it's not a new idea. We've been talking about it for a year now. Uh, it's superfluous because if you have further questions, Titus and his two uh, team members are going to be showing up in Corinth in a number of weeks. You can ask them whatever questions you have. It's superfluous because you know exactly what the money is going for. It's superfluous because I know that all of you, when it is said and done, will be generous in this offering. In fact, Paul Paul says in verse 2, you've been ready from the start. So the minute this whole idea of collecting money for poor believers in Jerusalem, the minute this was broached to the churches, uh, you had a warmth and a zeal right off the bat when it came to this great project. And so that being so, when I invited other churches in uh, southeastern Europe to give, um, everywhere I went, I boasted about you in Corinth. As I talked about the offering, I would say, you know, those folks in Corinth, the minute I mentioned this, they are ready, they're eager to give, they're going to take the lead in this. Uh, I boasted about you um, in Corinth and uh, even the whole province of Achaia. I boasted about the whole group of believers. And Paul says, um, and your zeal, I, I got a chuckle out of this, stirred up most of them. Not all of them. I have found over the years, no matter how worthy a project may be in a church, there are always a few holdouts. And no amount of reasoning, no amount of argumentation is going to convince them. And some of them have no vision, no heart. They're not going to give no matter what's said or done. I guess that's true in the apostolic era as well. So I kind of chuckled when Paul says, as I bragged on you Corinthians, it convinced most of them, but sadly, not all of them. But Paul says, verse 3, to be honest, I have a concern. And he says, since that initial burst of enthusiasm on the part of you Corinthians, not much has happened. Oh, yeah, we're going to be part of the collection. We're excited about it. But nothing's happened. You're ready to give, but you really don't have the money in hand. You don't seem to have a strategy. You don't seem to have a plan for moving forward. And Paul says, what I'm concerned about, you notice this in verse 3, is that over this past year, I've been boasting about you Corinthians everywhere I've gone, 
that it's all going to come up empty if you're not ready with the funds when the delegation shows up, as you promised. And so Paul says in verse 4, when I come, because Titus and his two friends are going to come first, but Paul says, I'm going to come a little later with some Christians from Macedonia, from Philippi, from Thessalonica, other places. And so when I come to Corinth, along with these delegates from the other churches who have already given, and they discover you're not ready, the money isn't ready to be collected and, and taken on, um, I'm going to be embarrassed, because I bragged on you for a whole year. I'm going to be humiliated to say nothing of you as a congregation. You are going to be humiliated in front of everybody. So Paul says, to make sure that that doesn't happen, verse 5, I'm sending this team of three ahead of time. And they're going to facilitate the completion of the collection, something you were eager and zealous to do, you volunteered to do, by the way, at the very beginning. And they are going to ensure that everything is in place, the funds are collected, everything is ready when I and the delegation shows up from Macedonia. Notice the last part of verse 5. So that it, the offering, may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So here's Paul's point. If the gift is not ready to go by the time I and the Macedonians arrive, um, you're going to be forced to scramble around at the last minute because you don't want to lose face, of course. So you're going to scramble around at the last minute, scrape some money together, but if that happens, it's no longer going to be an expression of blessing on your part. You kind of had to do it because you delayed and you didn't have a plan and you never really got, um, got on board, so to speak. In fact, Paul, in essence, is saying in the end of verse 5, your giving will be an expression of greed since you'll end up giving under duress. We're embarrassed. This delegation is here. We've got to find some dollars somewhere. Paul, everywhere, when he speaks about giving in, in this passage and elsewhere, um, a beautiful expression, Paul saw it as, uh, of love and partnership between Gentile churches and churches in Judea. And Paul says, if I at the last minute have to urge you to give, and then you do, you come up with something, it's going to be under duress is what it's going to end up being. And it's not going to be an expression of love for your fellow believers. It will actually be a testament to your unwillingness. It'll be an expression of covetousness and greed, which only parts with money when you kind of have to, for one reason or another. And so Paul says giving should always be eager, generous, voluntary, should not be under duress for any number of reasons. Ministry and finances. Um, I just want to, as I draw this to a close, give a word of thanks to those of you who have given to the ministry here in this past fiscal year. I hope you haven't felt under duress. I hope you haven't felt pressured, coerced, your arm twisted, so to speak. But I hope that what you've given, whether it be large or small, came from your heart, came from a desire to see that Christ is glorified, to see the work here expand and grow. God delights in each one of you when you give whether it's large or small, when you give with an open, generous, willing spirit. And I have found, and I know many of you have found as well, that when you give with an open heart, you are blessed, 
and the person or the ministry who receives the gifts, blessed as well. Giving is truly a blessing both ways when it comes from a generous heart. And so in this next fiscal year, we're officially beginning it today with our annual meeting. In this next fiscal year, yes, there are budgets, and yes, there are spreadsheets, and there are bank accounts, and all those sorts of things, necessary, all of them. But above all else, may we seek in love to reach others, to glorify God, that we be known here as a church, if we can say, use the words of this text, famous for proclaiming the gospel. If that's what we're known for, that's a church that has a heart for people, that's a church that reaches out, that's a church which makes a difference. If that marks us, and our finances then help to make that possible, God be praised. And so I trust, so a word of thanks again to each of you and a word of encouragement, not of putting under pressure, but a word of encouragement as God prompts you in these weeks to come, in this new fiscal year, to give with an open, generous heart. And may those in leadership, myself included, who see the finances, who look at them, may we have the glory of Christ as central in our minds and our hearts and may we always with perfect integrity and honesty handle every cent that is given to the ministries here. Let's pray together. Lord, um, sometimes we think of money as kind of secular stuff and sort of a necessary evil in the work of the church. Maybe we sometimes think of it that way. But Lord, if we have money and resources, those things are not evil things. Those are your gifts to us. Those are blessings. Those are positive things. And then, Lord, out of all you've given to us and you being the owner of everything, you invite us, you call us, you ask us to each one of us in a prayerful way to consider what we might give to minister to others and further the gospel and to bless the work of your kingdom. So, Lord, in these weeks to come, in the months of this next year, equip each one of us to be joyful, generous, givers, not giving under compulsion, not giving grudgingly, as Paul says in a few verses from now, because you love a cheerful giver. And so may that mark each of us. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.